Henry David Thoreau made this great statement, wonderful uh, poem. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. And, And as we jump into this new series, as you look into our society, I think Thoreau had it right here. There's this quiet desperation that's under the surface of our world that we live in today. We've got a society we live in in America that the standard that we have, the standard for living is so high compared to the rest of the world. If, If you have indoor plumbing, you're considered wealthy compared to the way the rest of the world lives. And, and, and what amazes me is you would think with this such high standard of, of living that we have that, that people would be happier. But the reality is, is even among Christians, you would think that we would have a joy and a peace knowing what Christ did for us and the standard of living that we have in America, we would be happy. But the reality is we are not. Men do lead lives of quiet desperation. And so as I was studying for this series on knowing your true identity, what I've come to figure out, not completely, but over 22 years of of full-time ministry and dealing with people and and even being a youth pastor for 10 years and a children's pastor for for 10 years, what what I've noticed, and then then leading adults as, as a senior pastor, going on 13 years at this church in December, can't believe that, um, what I've come to realize is that underneath people's lives, they are hurting. And, and I can remember even dealing with teenagers. You, you, you would have, you know, many, many of our teenage girls, they, they would look to me as almost like a, a father figure because, because in their lives there, there was so much turmoil in their, in their family and they would come into the youth group and they'd be looking for, for someone to pay attention to them and, 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 and someone to, to validate their lives because they weren't, getting that at home. There, I remember I, I, I went to visit this one boy at his, at his house and, it, and it, just, it just broke my heart. He was probably 13 years old and went to his house and you know, we went to McDonald's to get something to eat and just to get to know him, we went to his house and he had a couple other brothers and sisters and, 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 and so I said, so tell me about yourself. What, you know, what's your family like and stuff like that? And we we're sitting in the living room. He goes, he goes, or I mean in the dining room. He said, this is my favorite place in, in the whole a house. I said, really? You mean not, you know, not playing video games or anything like that? That's not your faith. He goes, no, I, I like the dining room because he goes, this is where we used to eat as a family. He goes, we don't do that anymore. My mom works. I come home from school. I've got to watch my brother, my younger brother and sister. She gets home late. I've got to fix them a meal. And before my parents split up, he goes, this is where we used to eat in the dining room. I'll tell you, I walked out of that house and that kid, there's a life of quiet desperation, trying to find his identity. Who is he? Trying to find the encouragement. I'm not blaming the parents or anything. I know we go through struggles and life and blah, 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 but you could just see he wanted that to talk. It wasn't the video games. He wanted companionship. He wanted to have that relationship that was lacking and, and I've come to realize, too, is that we just live in a, just a, a performance-based society and, and, and we're rewarded for being the best 
and the brightest. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with doing your best or succeeding, but, but much of our identity is based in our achievements, are based in, in, in what we do. And we're, we're told to, to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, to live a certain way. And so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do, not necessarily who we are. And the pressure to keep up is overwhelming. To look a certain way, to, to have the right clothes, if, you know, if, if you're in high school or, 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 or junior high, or, or just to be this certain person or to be this certain friend, I can remember when I was younger, there was a, a song that kind of epitomized a generation in the mid-70s. How many of you lived through the mid-70s and actually remembered it? Okay, just, just checking, okay? Um, the, the, something like, don't remember the 60s, don't remember the 70s, woke up in the 80s. Um, there was a song written in the 70s that epitomized this movement of identity and really where is our identity and how it got lost in our young people. It was a major hit in 1975, a major hit in 1975 because it struck a nerve with many who felt the same way. It was a song written by, by Janice Ian and the song was called At 17. Anybody remember that song? I'll read the li- Okay, okay, shouldn't use that illustration. Okay, but I'll read the words for you because some of you old people like me will remember it. And she basically wrote a song about herself and about how she felt at the age of 17 and what she finally came to realize at the end of her high school year. She says, I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with cleared skin smiles who married young and then retired. The Valentines I never knew, the Friday night charade of youth, were spent on one more beautiful at 17, I learned the truth. Brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs, whose name I could never pronounce, said, pity, please, the one who serves, the only one who gets what they deserve. The rich realized, and they get what they want. Hometown queens marry into what she needs, a guarantee of company. To those of us who knew the pain of Valentine's that never came, And those whose names were never called from choosing sides for basketball, it was long ago and far away. The world was so much younger than today, and dreams were all they gave away for free to ugly duckling girls like me. We played the game, and when we dared to cheat ourselves at solitaire, inventing lovers on the phone, repeating others' lives unknown, they'd call and say, come dance with me, and murmur vague obscenities at ugly duckling girls like me. At 17. That song was a major, major hit in 1975. And for the reason, for this major reason, it was an identity crisis. Who are we? Who is it meant for? Is it only meant for the popular and those that have it all together? But then what you would realize is when you would scratch under the surface to many of these lives, They were hurting just like anybody else. And they were trying to find their identity and what they could become and how people could like them for what they saw on the outside. But as you began to scratch underneath the surface, they were hurting just like anyone else. And I think what we've done in America today is we've created this pressure to try to look and act a certain way on the outside so that we'll be accepted 
that, that, that people will, will like us. And, and, and for those of us that, I mean, I just hated junior high. I think junior high is just horrific for young kids. Because it's, it's just that age of you're growing up and you got one kid that's six foot tall and you got the other kid that's five foot two. You know, it's hilarious. I'm, my son's basketball team in junior high modified. You got one kid that's like seven foot eight, you know. Then you got this other kid that's like four foot two and you're like, they're the same age. You know, they all grow at different times. But in junior high, it's, it's crazy and you're, you're trying to fit in and, and it's very difficult and, and, and the pressure and the bullying that, that goes on. But meanwhile, when you scratch under the surface, what's really going on? So, so what, what's, what's going on in our, our world today? Well, statistically, we can look at what's going on and I, I just want to share some of these because I think they speak about what's going on today. And it speaks about what we really value and, and, and where we need to be careful in our world today. The results are, are really shocking. And so as I, done, as I did some research on here, I was just shocked by some of this about what we really value. Here are some statistics. They say that the divorce rate are 40% higher in marriages where the spouse is a workaholic. 83% of working professionals use their smartphone or mobile device to check their email after work hours. And this, this one really shocked me. 98% of the U.S.'s 793.0 billion debt is made up of credit card debt. 40% of Americans admit that they live beyond their means. There's something that's driving us to achieve this American dream that's driving us into debt. And, and I, I think it's not just let's work harder or we have to achieve these things or, or having a home or having a car are necessarily bad things. But the problem is what's driving those things? And I think it's a need to, for identity and to feel to fit in. Let me just give you some statistics about self-image, about ourselves. The pressure to fit in is, is so overwhelming to be a certain person, that self-image. We're obsessed with our image and getting into shape and you can't watch the TV without all the infomercials and all the different exercising machines. I don't know how many more ab machines we could make. You know, how many, how many different ways can you do? When I was a kid, you just did, got on the ground, you did a sit-up. That was it. Remember in gym class? You just did a sit-up. Get down. Then you had that stinky old gym teacher standing over you with bad breath and yellow teeth screaming at you to do more sit-ups. Remember those days? I mean, that, that's, that was it. Now you've got the ab cruncher and the, you know, whatever the hydraulic, crazy, make your abs like a washboard in five minutes. You know what I mean? Just spend $19.95 and you can do that. It's just crazy. Here are some statistics that deal with our self-image. They say 8 out of 10 people in the U.S. suffer from an eating disorder. 90% are women. A third of teenage males feel pressure to have sex. 160,000 kids stay home from school every day because they are afraid of bullying. 40 million people, 40 million people in the U.S. will experience anxiety disorders this year. The pressure to be a certain kind of person is overwhelming. And don't think that the book, let me just say that as a parent, okay, I'm just being open with you. Don't think that the bullying is reserved to some jock who's picking on 
a little kid. One of my children are in advanced uh, studies. The bullying goes right on in those classes too. If you're not the smartest kid in the class, they'll let you know it. Just saying, something to pray about, okay? We think, oh, it's that big mean kid. No, it's not. Happened in any class. It's brutal. The pressure to be a certain kind of person, depending on your family background, bad examples, what was done to us, can form a belief system about ourselves that can be very, very dangerous. So we live with this kind of fear. This is what can happen in our lives. We live with the fear that I'll never measure up. It's that performance trap. We were taught to succeed at all costs. Thus, we never want to disappoint anyone. We may say things out of fear like, God doesn't really care about me. Why? Because I'm a worthless person, not able to be loved. I am unlovable. I will always be a failure, and I always will be, because we compare ourselves with other people, and we never seem to measure up. So we put all this pressure on ourselves to be this perfect person. If, if We say things like, if people really knew my life, they wouldn't like me. I'm damaged goods. I've, I've made too many mistakes in my life. And so we perpetrate this image and we calculate and we only allow people to get so close into our lives because we don't want that image to be tarnished a bit. So we create this image that we want people, we just want people to know about us just enough so that we can create this image and this identity so that people can say, oh, that, that person is, is, is really nice because we've created this wonderful image. But if they really knew my life, if I really shared what goes on in my life and some of the struggles I have, I'm afraid people won't like me then. I'll get shunned. I won't make friends because of that. Why have we gotten to that point? And people can happen in the church just as easily as it can happen in the world. See, the main problem is we're going down a road to find our worth and value, and it's the wrong road that leads to a dead end or a ditch. It's the road, and we're going to look at all these things in the upcoming weeks. The road of approval. Some of you are approval junkies. You are approval addicts. Amen. Some of you, I won't have you raise your hands, okay? Some of you, you just, you, you've got to have people's approval. You want to do that. Some of you are the performance junkies. You've got to perform to a certain level. And if it's not to this level, then you're not happy with yourself. Where does all that come from? It comes from someplace, people. Some of you, you're on that road of guilt and blame. You can't overcome the, the guilt and the blame of your past and you keep blaming yourself and you're walking with this guilt and condemnation. But let me just say this. All these roads are counterfeits to the real thing. And so the answer is what the world will tell you. Because as I said last week, Americans spend $11 billion on self-help material. $11 billion on trying to become a better person. So where's the answer? Well, the answer is not found in finding yourself, right? I just got to find myself. The problem is yourself is flawed to begin with. 
Because the Bible says we're all sinners. We're all marred by sin because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. So if I start with me, I start with a faulty foundation, a bad premise. I can't start with me. Because if I start with me, that's going to end up disastrous. And that's why we're in the mess we are today. We can't find the answer in ourselves. You can't find it in understanding your uniqueness. We're told it all the time. You're unique. You're a snowflake. You might be a flake, but not a snowflake, okay? See, the answer is not becoming a better person or doing more good than bad. The answer for your identity and security is not necessarily becoming healthier or buying another ab machine. All these things are not bad within themselves. But if we're trying to find our identity... These things are going to be short-lived because they're temporary patches to what's really going on in our souls and in our hearts. And so the answer for your identity is, is not even finding the right person to so-called complete you. And so the scripture that will be the basis for our identity series is going to be found in 2 Corinthians. And, and in order to do this, we, we must start with Christ. And I love what the, the Apostle Paul brings out here. And I want to read this passage for you. And, and let's see what Paul says here. And I want you to notice something. He uses one word over and over and over again, talking about his new life in Christ. Now remember the Apostle Paul. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. If you're going to look at somebody that just had a very unique, perfect life, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you're going to look at somebody that was religious... The Apostle Paul. If you're going to look at somebody that lived by the strict code of the religious law, it was Paul. If you're going to look at somebody that persecuted Christians that were bringing this new type of teaching about Jesus Christ being the Savior, it was Paul who persecuted them. I mean, he lived his life with zeal. He was the epitome of someone who tried to live his life uh, uh, through religion and being perfect through the religious standard and the law and, and legalism. But I want you to see Paul's new life here in Christ stripped him of all those things that he once identified with, that once held him to high esteem in his, his community and his culture. He was stripped of all those things when he came to Jesus Christ. Let's read that in 2 Corinthians five, fourteen through 17. It says, either way, Christ's love does what? controls us. That's interesting use of words. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now, exclamation point. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Underline that in your notes. Become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, I want you to see something there. Paul over and over and over again, says there, our identity must be found in death. In order to find our identity, it must be found in death. There must be a death. How many 
times does Paul use this word died? He uses it quite often in these verses. And what Paul is saying is we need to die to ourselves, our desires, in order to find ourselves. It's not that we need to find ourselves in order to find ourselves. He goes, we need to actually die to ourselves in order to find ourselves in Christ. And so what he does here is he goes on, as he writes the Philippians, and he talks about this new life, this new identity. Listen, I want to hammer this into your hearts, people. Listen to me, because the the, the diet of, of Christian evangelical teaching today the, the gospel message that's being taught in many churches today. And this is what I want to guard you from as your pastor because I just love you. I love you as your pastor. And, and I want to guard you and shepherd you from some of this bad teaching that's floating around the American churches today. Listen, Christ didn't come to just improve your life. Jesus didn't come to tweak your life and just make it better. Because I think in America, we're we're so privileged to have so many things before us that it just seems to me that the normal gospel message of Jesus dying for your sins isn't good enough for us today. we got to throw in a little bit more. Hey, if you come to Christ, He's going to make your life better. He's going to make your life better now. He's going to give you all these things. He's going to bless you. Now listen, He does. He blesses us with so many spiritual things through His grace. It's unbelievable, right? Amen? We're products of His grace. But I think physically and materially we get caught up in this thing that he's going to bless me with all these things and then when things don't go our way and we go through struggles and trials we're like well where's jesus now so realize that jesus just didn't come to tweak your life to take what was already there and make it better you see my problem when i came to christ is in my life the way i was looking at my life is i was relatively a good kid that's why i looked at my life now i was my sin stunk just like everybody else's sin i was a sinner headed to hell like the the worst drug addict or prostitute or murderer or anybody else in that category i was on the same road they were on but i looked at my life through my righteous standard like paul's going to talk about right here in philippians that i thought well because i didn't do certain things i didn't get drunk i didn't have sex before marriage all this stuff I say, okay i didn't do all this stuff so that must mean i'm okay so for me I was like, well, why do I need Jesus? Because I'm already okay. It wasn't until someone presented the gospel message that said, Barton, you're not okay. You're a sinner like everyone else that needs a Savior. Because once I compared my life to Jesus and realized how perfect he was, I fell flat on my face. Because my works were nothing compared to what Jesus did and what he did for me. And I fell on his grace. And I I cried out to Jesus to save my soul that I realized he came for sinners. He didn't came just to make my life better or to make me a better student or to make me a better dad or to make me a better husband. All those things are results of a life that's changed by Christ. But I had to come to the realization that Jesus came to give me a brand new life. Not an improved life, but a brand new life stripping me of my old life and my old philosophies and what I thought was good and righteous. And so look at what Paul says here to the Philippians. Once again, perfect in every religious standard Paul was. He says this, he says, but whatever I gained, I had, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have... He's not bragging here, okay? He's just saying, this is what happened when I now identified with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered and lost all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, nothing, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Underline that, people, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, right? Okay, I didn't, I didn't drink. I didn't do all these things, God. So there's my righteousness of my own. Paul says, I was perfect in every way, but that was a righteousness of my own. That came from what? The law. I was trying to do it through the law, not through grace, not through Christ, but through this law of good and, 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 and do's and don'ts. And I was doing a lot of the, the good stuff. But that which was, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I might even share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul's goal was to know Christ, not just intellectually, but relationally through suffering, through his power. And Paul says, even through death, giving my life for him. I'm, I'm going to even do this for you. If, if I've got to give my life here, I will not. Now, that doesn't gain his salvation. He's what's saying, my faith is what saved me, but I want to know Christ and I've given my life for him. So no matter what I go through, Lord, my life is not my own. My life is in you now. I'm identifying with you. People, that's what, if you've not been baptized, you need to get baptized. Because that's what baptism is all about. You're telling the world that you now identify with Jesus Christ. My baptism experience was one of the greatest things in my step faith walk with Jesus. It doesn't save you, but identify. My whole family was baptized together when I was 16 years old. Bunch of people walking around, bunch of people witnessing it. I got to share what Jesus meant to me. I'll never forget that because at that moment, I said, my life is not my own. As a 16-year-old that's trying to fit into high school and trying to be like everybody else as a freshman, not to, not to stick out like a, a sore thumb, and I didn't do a good job at that because I, I just was like a klutz so many times. I'd always trip up the stairs and my books would fly all over the place and always walked in the wrong classroom. I always did something just to embarrass myself. Didn't do a good job fitting in, Okay. I'd have nosebleeds all the time. We had a midterm my freshman year for algebra class. I got a nosebleed in the middle of it, gushing all over the table. All the kids are looking at me like, loser. No, okay, so it's just, you know, I didn't do a good job with some of that stuff, okay? But listen, Paul says, now my life is identified with Christ. My worth now comes from him. I count all those things that I've done in the past is nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. And that's why I believe baptism is so important because now what you're saying is I'm identifying with Christ and I'm saying to the world, you are my savior. My life is not my own. I am in Christ. He saved me. He's given me a brand new life. So sign up for baptism if you've not been baptized. A wonderful testament of what Jesus done for you to share with the world. So Paul's focus was Christ 
period. Paul concluded that whatever he did in the past was meaningless in comparison to knowing what Christ did for him. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, I could not find this righteousness through the law by trying to be perfect. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find my identity and try, even, even as I tried, and I know that's a trap for many church people through legalism is we try to find our righteousness by what we do and we don't do. And that can be an endless pit that can never be filled because we're trying to be perfect and we're trying to be perfect and we're trying to be better and we're trying to be better. And meanwhile, we wonder why our lives in Christ are just miserable because, miserable because we don't know what it means to actually be free. So he couldn't find this righteousness through the law or trying to be perfect. But, but Paul tried to find his identity and worth through his efforts. And it failed, it failed, it failed. And it failed in comparison to his life in Jesus Christ. So here's the issue, here's the problem. When we look to ourselves to find our worth, we will always fall short for this very reason. We will look to worldly things to make us feel better about ourselves. We'll always look to worldly things, and you can call those worldly things idols. We will look to fake idol substitutes to make ourselves better. And here are the idols that we can set up in our lives if we're not careful. Our sports can be our idols. I want to be the best at my sport. Or your hobby can be an idol. I, I, I want to do great at this, this hobby or whatever it is. I want to get all, all A's, which none of these things are bad in themselves, but if we set those things up in our lives and those are the primary things that bring us identity, then those things can become idols. A good thing, a thing that, that's okay, can actually become an idol and a stumbling block in our life. We can even create idols within our religious system that I've created all these do's and don'ts that I must do and I must not do, and they become idols in my life because I begin to worship the law and, and my own standard of righteousness and not Jesus Christ. And then I begin to impose all those laws and legalistic laws and everybody else that they have to do. And it's an endless pit that can never be filled. So we can look to sports and hobbies, whatever it is, school, we may even look to our marriages. Our marriages can become idols. Our children can become idols. Our jobs can become idols because we look for those things to give us security and happiness, yet it is never complete and all fall, they all, they all fail in effort. And because we're trying to make ourselves feel better. If I just have the right kids and if the kids make me look good and we vicariously live through our kids and, 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 and they've got to be a certain way, they've got to look a certain way. And, and if you're in a Christian family, like, well, my kids can't embarrass me because they better, they better do what's right so it makes me look good. And I'm embarrassed if they make me look bad. That's an idol, people. That's an identity falsehood that you're trying to find identity through your kids to make you look good. Now, I know... I know, I know, I'm a parent. And somebody comes up to you and says, oh, your child is so wonderful. What have you done? What have you done? Let me just sit down and bask in your knowledge of wonderful parenthood. Please let me know. And how many know your head gets bigger and bigger? And you're like, yeah. I'm pretty good. Done a good job with my kids. Thank you. Yeah. You need me to teach a seminar? I'll teach a seminar. Yeah, I'll teach a seminar on how to be good. You know, how many of you, 
How many of you, you relate so much better when you hear someone share, whether it's parenting or their own life, when they share their mistakes and how they weren't perfect as parents and how they made mistakes? How many of you are just like, good, I'm not the only one. Because how many know you can have a family, you can have one kid that just, woo, just walks the tightrope, and then you got this other, like, where did this child come from? I don't know this. And then you say to your wife, your husband, they're from your side of the family. That's where they get their struggles from, right? See, so here's the problem. Where, where, where do we find the answer to our worth? Will it come from another self-help book? Will it come from hugging yourself or looking in the mirror and trying to convince yourself that you're good and you're special? Is that where it's going to come from? It's got to come from Christ. We have to identify with Christ. So this intro to these whole series of messages is going to be the springboard into how we find our identity in Christ and all these traps that we try to find that are meaningless to try to find our identity. So the answer comes, and we see it from Paul, is found in knowing the one who created us knowing the one that created us so if you get anything out of this message i want you to get this one point christ is the one who makes you worthy listen get this into your noggin okay christ is the one who makes you worthy not your job not your kids, because they're going to fail you at times. Not your marriage, because your marriage is not always going to be perfect at times. Those things do not bring your worth. Your job does not bring your worth. Now, is it okay to be a good parent and try to strive to have good kids and discipline? I'm not saying any of those things are bad. We need to do that. We need to, to strive at your job to, have a, you know, to, to succeed and do your best. All those things are fine. I'm not saying don't do your best and just roll over and and don't strive to do what's right. But listen, if you're striving after those things to bring your identity, what happens when those things fail? It will reveal what you really trust. Did you hear me? When those things fail, when there's a job loss, when your kid becomes rebellious, when your marriage isn't working out the way you thought it should, when all these things begin to fail, it will reveal what you really trust, what you're truly identifying with. And, and I just want to bring this illustration out, so just follow me here, okay? I brought a golf club in today. I was going to actually bring a golf club and, and try to hit it right down the center of the row, but Luke told me not to. Actually, <laughs> Luke, said he's in a per- Luke said he's in a perfect spot because he's right in the middle because I've golfed with Luke and I always... I'm in the woods more than I'm on the ferry. Okay, anyways, we move on. It keeps me humble. Okay, if I were to take this golf club and I were to say, how much is this golf club worth? The, the worth of this golf, because it's just metal. It, it, it's probably, I don't know, worth to make this thing, maybe $10, I don't know, $5, $10 to actually make this thing. It's a lot more retail, but just to make it, it's probably $10. But if, if I were to take this golf club and put it in the hands of, Rory McIlroy or Phil Mickelson, and they were to sign this thing, now how much do you think this golf club is worth? worth somebody said $1,000. I don't know. Maybe it would be $1,000. I don't know. A lot. It would be worth a lot. More than $10, right? So here's the thing. Now, the golf club in my hands 
because I'm such a great golfer, it, guess what it's going to be worth? Probably $2, okay? It, not even 10 So here's the thing. What makes this club that's only cost about $10 probably to make, I don't know what it would be retail, what makes it worthy? What makes it worthy is who's holding it. It depends whose hands that this golf club is in. The minute this touches the hands of Phil Mickelson or Jack Nicholas, all of a sudden the worth goes way up. This worthless golf club becomes worthy. What makes you worthy is not who you are, not how great your kids are, not whether or not you get straight A's in school, not whether or not you're the top in your field and your academia. That's not what gives you worth because those things within themselves cannot bring you your true identity. They fall flat. That's why people at the end of their lives, when they're laying on their deathbed, are not clinging on to their bowling trophies. Honey, bring me my bowling trophy. I got third place in 1946. <laughs> Just made me feel so special. Can you bring my bowling trophy? Can you bring me my checkbook, honey? I just want to hug it and love it. Who, who comes around that bed? Family? Friends? Crying out to the Lord? See, what makes you worthy is that when you put your life in the hands of Christ, you are worthy because of what he's already done for you. Stop trying to please God by what you do because he's, gonna, he's not going to love you any more or any less. Listen, you get out of this place today and you're hungry and you're a little agitated and you want to eat and you lose your temper and you're like, oh man, I just sat in church today and pastor spoke on this whole thing and I lost my temper. Guess what? Jesus still loves you. Now, do you need to correct that? I'll slap you silly. Of course you need to correct that bad attitude, okay? But if you're trying to do it to gain God's favor by saying, oh, I'm a bad person. God doesn't love me anymore because I just, he still loves you. The death he died on the cross is for your sins of yesterday, today, and the sins you're going to create tomorrow. He still loves you. His love for you is unconditional. What makes you worthy is where you put your life. And if you put your life in the hands of Christ, you're a precious vessel that he desires to use for his glory. No amount of A's or a perfect life can ever do that. I, uh, I heard this terrible story happen yesterday of one of the premier running backs in the college uh, ranks, Marcus Lattimore, running back for South Carolina Gamecocks. He just blew his knee out. A helmet hit his knee and his leg went up. It looked like a rag doll. It's hard to watch. Um, maybe he was, he was picked to go in the NFL. He was a star running back in the whole college football. It, it's, it, it's season ending. It could be career ending. We don't know. But here's the thing. Both sides, I've never seen this before in a college game. Both sides of the benches cleared and walk to the middle of the field to greet Marcus Lattimore. Why? Because that boy right there 
loves Jesus. He has such great character. When he, he's made like two, one or two touchdowns in every game. You don't see him jumping around, and punching, you know, look at me, and you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And you know, he doesn't do any of that. He just does what he's supposed to do. And this is what the coach said about him. She goes, Coach, what do you think is going to happen? This he goes, Listen, I love what the coach said. Oh, it was so good. I, I got tears in my eyes washing because it was just so powerful. The coach said this. Spurrier said this about his running back. He said, he's a great man, great man of character, and whatever he does, it won't matter because he'll be successful in whatever he does because he has great character. See, it wasn't being a great running back that makes Marcus Lattimore worthy. It's because he knows Jesus and he loves Jesus and he wants his life to be an example of who Jesus is. I love that the coach recognized that, identified that in the character of his running back. That's powerful. He may never play football again, but that's not what makes him worthy. What makes him worthy is his life and his hands are in Jesus Christ. I want to finish showing you this video. I, I love just... Just a three-minute video. I love the movie Chariots of Fire. I love the whole story behind Eric Little. And I wanted to show you at the end of the movie, let me just give you a little, little highlight of this. Eric Little was supposed to win the 100-meter dash in the 1924 Olympics, but because the prelims were run on Sunday and he was a Christian, he didn't want to run, so he gave it up. And that was the that was the event he was supposed to win. He, he, he ran the 400 meters, which he wasn't supposed to win. And I want you to see, as you watch this clip of the movie Chariots of Fire at the end of the movie, of, of where Eric Little's faith and where his worth comes from. It didn't come from receiving a gold medal or even being the best. Notice where his worth came from. Go ahead and look up at the screens. I'll be back in three. Final of 400 meters. Taylor, Etats Unis. Numero 278. Good luck. Don't expect I'll see you till after the race. What's the deal with this guy, Little, coach? You a problem? No problem. He's a flyer. He's had two races today already. He'll die. Just swing along, you guys, and wait. After 300 meters, rigor mortis sets in. You'll pull him in on a rope. Good luck, Taylor. Watch out for Little. Coach says no problem. He's got something to prove, something personal. Something guys like Coach will never understand in a million years. Says in the old book, he that honors me, I will honor. Good luck, Jackson Shores.
This is what I love that he says. He goes, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. I like that. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Can you imagine if we can get to the point with with the things that God has gifted us with? And I believe that God gifts us with all kind of gifts to use for for his kingdom. And to say, God, I want to be used for your pleasure now. See, what happens, I think, with our identity and the reason why we're bruised and and the reason why we're looking to fit in is because we're looking to glorify ourselves. We're looking to be noticed. We want people to pat us on the back. We want to say, hey, look how, how great you are. But can you imagine if we would have the same attitude as Eric Little and say, you know what? I just want to feel God's pleasure. I know he's gifted me here, but I know that he's created me for a purpose And I just want to feel his pleasure in what I do, that he takes pleasure in me when I glorify him and the things and the gifts that God has given me. Now the identity for Eric wasn't in the gold medal or achieving first place or being the best in the world. His identity was in Christ, which he was a missionary uh, to China and just did great things for Christ. His identity was not in a piece of metal. His identity wasn't in a trophy. His identity was in Christ. And he could feel God's pleasure as he gave it to the Lord. And I want to pray for you today. There may be some of you here today and you're just like, man, pastor, I just, I've been struggling. I've been struggling with just identity and struggling looking at my life and things aren't going right. And, and I'm just, I'm down and, uh, and the Lord just wants to use you and he wants you to find yourself in him and 
know that you're worthy in him and just allow yourself, see yourself putting your life into the hands of Christ to allow him to give you the worthy. Maybe you were, uh, maybe when you were younger, you were told that you would never amount to anything or that you were going to be no good and you're going to be a failure. So every time you, you do something wrong or you make a mistake, you're just brought all the way back to that image and to that time where you were told that you were stupid and, and that you weren't going to amount to anything. And so for your whole life, you've been living with that stipulation over your head. Jesus says, come to me. Find your worth in me. Who cares what those people say? I love you, and I gave my life for you. You come to me and find your worth in me, find your security in me, and allow my good favor to rest on you now. Don't go to the world and those false substitutes that are going to leave you empty and wanting more. Humble yourself before me. Allow me to lift you up. So, Lord, I pray right now for every heart that's here today that you would just touch them, God. That you would speak to them your worth. That you would speak to them your love and what you did for them. Lord, take away all those things that we've clung on to that really don't bring us worth. And may we put our hands in the one who makes us worthy because he was perfect. And that we may walk in that freedom and joy knowing that Jesus loves me. That he gave his life for me. That I can walk in that freedom. And I don't have to care what the world says anymore because I'm not trying to please them anymore. It's Christ, as Paul said. I want to know you. I want to know you in your death and resurrection. So we thank you, Lord. And I pray you touch every heart here today that they would walk out of this place with a new security, with comfort knowing what Christ has done for them and they can put their lives in his hands. Jesus' wonderful name. Jesus' wonderful name. Listen, we're going we're gonna to sing just a song in closing today and uh, just sing it unto the Lord. Make it your prayer. Listen, as, as you sit in his presence, listen, if, if, if you want to make a proclamation this morning to kind of end this whole thing, as you're sitting there, we begin to sing these words. If you want to stand and just say, Lord, I'm going to give my life to you and do it afresh. And I want my life to be identified in you. And I'm making a stand by saying, Lord, I'm just putting my hands or my life in your hands that all the giftings and everything you've given me, Lord, I want to, I want to bring, bring pleasure to you in my life. And just forgive me for following those false substitutes that just make, make me not worthy at all. And may I find my worth in you today. So as we begin to sing this, if you want to stand, it's just a proclamation of saying, God, I, I'm just here for you, Jesus, and I'm giving you my life anew and afresh. You do with my life what you feel fit, God, because I'm giving it to you now, anew and afresh. Thank you for making all things new. Amen. So let's do that. Let's just sing this in closing today, and let's just worship the Lord. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, Lord.
trophy you want to have, it's that one right there. And so God, thank you for, for what he's done for us. I and mean, it's amazing how much he loves us and he cares for us. So thank you for being so sensitive and open to God's word today. God bless you. Listen, for those of you that uh, need prayer for anything, um, our prayer partners will be up front. We'll pray with you, whatever you're going through. Uh, don't feel like you have to leave this place without somebody praying for you, whatever you're going through. Maybe, maybe you just made a new commitment to Christ today. Feel free to, to take one of the Bibles that are in the seats. Those are yours. If you're under Bible, you can have those. There's also a booklet, What Now and How to Follow Up with Your Walk with Christ. That's for free. That's at the information table. Make sure you pick that up. That's all available for you uh, as you uh, walk with, with Jesus Christ. So, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Amen. Let's give the Lord just praise for His Word today. Amen. Praise God. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great day. saw the pearl.
could be